0: PFK in Los Angeles. This is living in the USA. I'm John Weiner, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Today we're going to turn away from all the bad news and feature a couple of segments from our greatest hits collection. Later in the show, the synergy between politics and popular culture has never been clearer or stronger than in the age of Reagan. Jay Hoberman will explain. He's the author of a wonderful book called Make My Day, Film Culture in the Age of Reagan. Hoberman, of course, was a legendary film critic for The Village Voice for 30 years. But first, Katha Pollitt about advice for men. Katha, of course, is an award-winning poet, essayist, and columnist for the nation. We reached her today at home in New York. Hi, Katha.
1: Hi, John.
0: Well, when I saw that your new column is about Jordan Peterson, I immediately had a question. Who is he?
1: <laughs> You're not alone. My friends are so out of it. <laughs> they all have the same response. Who? Who? What are you talking about? Jordan Peterson is immensely famous. He, his first book uh 12 rules for life an antidote to chaos sold 5 million copies i don't think <laughs> you and i together sold even half of that <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. and uh, it's been sl- it's slated for translation into 50 languages but even more impressive than that because a lot of people can buy a book and then as you know not read it um his youtube channel has get this million subscribers
0: so you say these best-selling books are crammed with references to nietzsche dostoevsky the bible jesus and jung we're talking about big-time thinkers here uh, but what is the message that he finds in all these big-time thinkers you say it's men should work hard be responsible and make your bed not sure that's really what jesus said Or Dostoevsky, but but Katha, what's wrong with saying men should be responsible? Isn't isn't that what you want too?
1: Well, don't forget the ancient Mesopotamian deities and <laughs> Isis and Osiris, who also were probably not too big on making their beds and figure, figure uh, significantly in this book. And we should mention he's the reason I wrote about him is there's a, a new volume.
0: Yes, a more rules, more Four rules,
1: twelve more rules for life. Um, well, I think. I think this book, um, the kind way of speaking about it, is that it does speak to um, a great confusion that many men feel. They they want to get with the program, but they don't really know how to do it, and they want a purpose in life, and they don't have one. And of course, women want a purpose in life too, um, but they're not. Fewer of them are going to Jordan Peterson for that. Um, he's he's also quite anti-feminist.
0: Let's start at the beginning here. What is Jordan Peterson's rule number one?
1: Stand up straight with your shoulders back.
0: So you're saying 5 million men paid $26 to be told stand up straight with your shoulders back? What What is going on here?
1: That's not all. Uh, rule 12 is... Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street.
0: I uh, see
1: that reduced you to silence. I'm stunned. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a big cat person, so I, I'm okay with that one. I like cats too,
0: but I don't pat them on the street because they a lot of them don't want to be patted by strangers.
1: I know, but Jordan Peterson wouldn't care about that.
0: <laughs> it's not about what the cat wants. I looked up the publicity for his new rules, his new book, and according to the publicity, the thesis, the book has a thesis, which is too much security is dangerous. And that's because, quote, unchecked order can petrify us into submission. I I think we have to agree that we do not want to be petrified into submission.
1: Uh yeah, he really has a way with words, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but before I forget, I have to say that this book begins with a long what he calls an overture in his pretentious way, in which he discusses all his uh, his physical problems um, where he was on this all meat diet, which he was touting um, that this is just the best thing, just eat nothing but meat, just meat, 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 meat. And then he became very sick um, and ended up, he ended up in a coma in Russia and he was in this coma and he was also addicted to um, various Uh, prescription meds. And he talks about this on and on and on. See, people who write these books, How to Live, they very rarely have a lot of self-knowledge. That's probably why they think they can tell everybody else how to live. They're not really paying attention. So he had this whole thing with meat and prescription meds. But nonetheless, you should still do everything he says. I think his basic thing, and I was very soft on him, although it doesn't seem that way because I was having fun and being kind of snarky, but basically it appeals to the, the kind of rigid anti-woman feelings that some men have where what they really want is a girlfriend. And yet, and they don't understand why they don't have a girlfriend. What's the matter with these horrible women? (laughs) I hate them. They won't be my girlfriend. Uh, so um he basically so his other other rules have to do with things like okay work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing and see what happens so who could disagree with that who could Um, disagree and you could see how somebody's kind of adrift in life that yeah i should really find something i i like doing and i should try to do it really well um that's good and then uh plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. Well, this is straight out of a women's magazine, (laughs) except I love plan and work diligently. That's sort of militaristic approach to dating. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the last rule, be grateful in spite of your suffering. And what's interesting about that is that he acknowledges that people suffer. And I think in America it's supposed to, we're supposed to be happy all the time. And if you have real serious troubles, you keep them inside. And we don't get a lot of acknowledgement
2: mm-hmm. of
1: of loneliness, of feelings of failure, of all your personal relationships being very difficult, um, all that. And and he he says, Yeah, of course you're miserable, and I'm gonna fix you.
0: Yeah, well, you know, he does say there's one other revealing thing related to that. The Amazon page for his new book has an excerpt that begins, don't do work that makes you contemptuous of yourself, feeling weak and ashamed, close quote. Now, of course, that's great advice, but it's interesting that he is acknowledging what many of his readers feel, that they feel weak and ashamed and and contemptuous of themselves. That's pretty radical, as you say, for an American.
1: It is not very American. It's not very manly. Manly is kind of the opposite of those things, isn't it? Um, And so I think you have a lot of people who feel their life isn't working out and they have to work at a job they hate and maybe they don't feel they're very good at it. But maybe those two things are related. And because people tend not to be really good at things that they don't enjoy or approve of. (laughs) Um, Feminists hate Jordan Peterson. Let's just get that on the table. They hate him. And in fact, the publishing company of this book, the hundreds of the young staffers signed a petition. Don't publish this. Oh man! Um, oh, man. That wasn't going to happen given that what his sales figures are, but so he's widely hated on the left and especially by feminists. And I think that's fair. Mm. I'm, just amazed anybody can get through this book because it's so disastrously badly written. It's so tedious. It reminds me of, like, you probably have had students that Postpone their paper until the night before. and that the paper is long. It's like you have to write 40 pages. And so they just put in everything, everything they have ever known or thought, everything they have read. And that's where you get all this crazy, you know, uh, uh, Isis and Osiris. I'm sure they can come in here somewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, another one that he brings in that I was sort of surprised to see is he, he has a thing about humans are a lot like lobsters.
1: Oh, lobsters. Yeah.
0: What does he mean by that?
1: You can go to his website, and there's all these lobster-themed things you can buy, like a necktie, uh, a T-shirt, uh, a cover for your cell phone with these little <laughs> lobster. and uh, the T-shirt, I think, says Hail Lobster, or maybe that, or maybe that's the hat, Hail Lobster. So the lobster, according to him, is very much like people in the following way um, because of some neurological similarity. The fact that lobsters are basically hostile and competitive and territorial means that that's the way people are.
0: I saw that you mentioned this, and then I googled what is the lobster personality, and the first thing that came up was, despite their warlike appearance, lobsters are actually sensitive and delicate animals. That's from the website animalsofaustralia.com.
1: Well, so now I have to feel guilty again for eating lobster rolls. I was, I thought Jordan I Peterson was giving me permission to have as many as I wanted.
0: <laughs> then I also found on Google that the Swiss government just passed the law stating people can no longer boil a lobster alive.
1: I'm gobsmacked. What will, they'll have to take that famous scene out of Annie Hall, remember? <laughs>
0: <laughs> My point is he seems to be wrong about lobsters.
1: And many other things as and well. Many other things. For example, women. He said, <laughs>
0: For, "Just to take yes."
1: In in volume two, in the volume I'm discussing, he talks very little about feminism. There's only a couple of mentions because he, I think, because he got into so much trouble in book one talking about them and uh, feminists. And so, but he says, you know, no matter what feminists say, I've seen it time and time again. What women, all women, basically want to have children. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. I think a lot of women wanted to have children, but, you know, maybe 80%. But it's not something all women want. But his thing is, okay, all women want to have children. They are being led up the garden path by feminism to focus on their careers. And then wham, bam, it's too late. You know, they've got fertility problems. But another problem they have is men. <laughs> that I, 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 I,
0: This is your view. This is your view.
1: This is well, my view, that so, the men so, that this book is written for are not really boyfriend material.
0: Yeah, you, you say the basic problem Jordan Peterson is addressing is that men are having a hard time getting quality girlfriends and now have to make more of an effort to be what you call boyfriend material. What uh, What is the cause of this problem in your view?
1: In my view, I I think that um, they haven't really reckoned with, a lot of men haven't really reckoned with feminism and what it requires of them. They still are with the old mindset. And then they're constantly surprised when women put them in the friend zone, for example.
0: Um, At this point, I think we have to talk about incels, involuntary celibates, one of the most searched terms on Google last year, it turns out. What what advice does Jordan Peterson have for incels?
1: Do not allow yourself to become resentful, deceitful, or arrogant. That's rule 11. It's good advice if you can follow it. But incels love Jordan Peterson. I think there's people like his militarism, his rigidity, his kind of straighten up and fly right. Like my father used to say, they like, they want that old, that patriarchal thing. And it's not so easy to find that patriarchal thing in a psychologist, which is what he is. You have to go to, you know, a superhero movie to get that. But now you, you can have Jordan Peterson.
0: Okay. You don't think Jordan Peterson is a good source of advice, despite the fact that he sold millions of books in dozens of languages. Uh, Have you got anything better to offer as wisdom for how to live these days?
1: Well, um, my husband and I have been reading out loud for a very long time Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Now, I have to say that uh, the classicist I revere, Mary Beard, thinks the Stoics are terrible people. Um, They're fascists. Marcus Aurelius was just a major war maker Um, which he mentions occasionally in in the book. But I feel this book has been guiding people through the struggles of life for over a thousand years. And unlike Jordan Peterson, it's well-written and it's short. And at, at the end of my column, I summarize his advice. Okay, rule one. These are better rules than Jordan Peterson's. Rule one, try as hard as you can to be a good, responsible, serious person. Rule two, be aware that much of life is out of your control. You just have to accept that. And rule three, in any case, soon you will be dead.
0: (laughs) Soon you will be dead. Katha Pollitt wrote about Jordan Peterson's advice for men in her latest column. You can read it at thenation.com. Katha, I don't care what you say, I'm going to stand up straight from now on.
1: (laughs) Me too. And shoulders back. Shoulders (laughs) back. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The synergy between politics and popular culture has never been clearer or stronger than in the age of Reagan. And now there's a wonderful new book on movie culture in the age of Reagan. It's called Make My Day, and the author is Jay Hoberman. For 30 years, he was a film critic for The Village Voice, He's also written for Art Forum, The New York Review, The New York Times, and The Nation. He's written a dozen books, including the brilliant Army of Phantoms American Movies in the Making of the Cold War. Jay Hoberman, welcome
2: back. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: When you write about movie culture in the age of Reagan, you focus not on what you think are the best movies of the 80s or the movies you most admire. In fact, You pay a lot of attention to the movies you dislike. Why is that?
2: Well, the fact that I dislike these movies uh, doesn't mean that they're not interesting for me to write about. And I chose movies that I felt were symptomatic of what was going on both in politics and the the, the culture at large.
0: And Reagan, of course, was often dismissed by liberals as just an actor from old Hollywood. But you think the fact that he was part of old Hollywood gave him a special uh, power and success as president?
2: Uh, Definitely. Uh, There are are two things here. I mean, first of all, uh, when he ran for governor of California, uh, the liberals and the Democrats just did not take him seriously. He seemed like a lightweight. And how was he going to beat? Pat Brown, a two-term governor of California in a real political powerhouse, what they didn't realize was that an actor knows how to present. An actor knows how to deliver a line. Uh, an and actor can, uh, can hit their marks. It's very difficult for a politician to, to compete with somebody who's that polished and professional at, at projecting an image. The other thing, and maybe the, uh, uh, the the more significant one, is that Reagan bought into the whole Hollywood package, particularly in the 1940s. And what I mean by that is that, taken as a whole, American movies had a particular kind of ideology. They were very optimistic, forward-thinking, inclu- imagined that they were inclusive. I mean, in fact, they were not, but they had that self-appointed sense of uh, of universal appeal. Certainly they wanted to appeal universally. And um, mandated happy endings. I mean, there was a production code into the 1960s that kept things from getting too real. I think that Reagan internalized all of this. And this is why I consider him Hollywood's greatest creation. I mean, he sincerely believed this stuff. And um, the one Real takeaway I had from doing research at the Reagan Library. If I'm not mistaken, you've done work there too, have yes. you? Yes. But what I did take away from this was the degree to which Hollywood was still so central in his thinking. I mean, you know, his wife had been in the movies also. Nancy was a minor star. And <clears throat> I really think that this was the high point of their lives. I mean, being president was very nice, and he certainly <laughs> enjoyed it. But I think that it's, it's really not as, good, not as great as being a movie star, even when he wasn't you know, in the first rung. I mean, just to be part of that. And I, I say this because they stayed in touch with people. They spent a lot of time reaching out, you know, making videos. I mean, they spent a the month making a, a birthday video for Lou Wasserman, who had been their agent and who was at that time the leading Democratic fundraiser in California. did not make any difference to them. He was, you know, they were together in showbiz. He was there. He was their guru. You know, he was their rabbi, and um, so he was. He was not a great movie star, but he, he, I think, he embodied Hollywood more completely than any than any other star.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the movies after Reagan was reelected in 1984 in a landslide, you wrote a big piece for The Village Voice where you said that during that campaign year, only one film, quote, mirrored Reaganism in full flower, and that film was Ghostbusters. You called it aesthetically weak but ideologically potent. Tell us about Ghostbusters.
2: Okay. Now, the reason I said that was that Ghostbusters, I think objectively, and, you know, I was a working movie critic, in in 1984. So I saw a lot of movies. I I didn't think I didn't find Ghostbusters really that funny. I mean, I I, I saw certain things in it that that were appealing, but you know, the, the 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 setup was was kind of fun, but the movie was not that that funny. But something it, it inspired like almost, you know, like a fanatical devotion. It it overperformed. People saw something in there that they really wanted and I think that uh, the same thing was true with Reagan. And uh, it's not like Ghostbusters is, is, is an allegory of Reaganism, or that Reagan was taking cues from Ghostbusters. It's that they're, they're both symptomatic of the same thing, this uh, uh, longing for uh, 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 the world to be in a certain way. And, you know, you and I remember this, but lots of people don't. 1984 was a year that had, like, a really uncanny significance for Americans and for people in the West in general, being the, the, the year of George Orwell's dystopian novel. Yeah. And um, I feel that, in, in a funny sort of way, both Reagan and the movie liquidated that anxiety. And this is, despite the fact that Reagan was, uh, was a terrible uh, uh, saber-rattler, if not warmonger, you know, throughout 1983, I mean, he, he conjured up a crisis, um, which he then dissipated, which is exactly what the Ghostbusters are accused of doing uh, in, the, in the movie, you know, like inventing ghosts so that they can exercise them. But I think, you know, the, there, there are two key aspects uh, where the, um, uh, the movie and the campaign coincide. Well, three, actually, because uh, Ghostbusters makes such a big deal about making the uh, guy from the Environmental Protection Agency, like this really humorless, uptight, annoying, kind of hippie type. You know, I mean, uh, so they're against regulation. Reagan, you know, hated regulation. You know, they consider that they've come up with this fantastic entrepreneurial plan. Uh, At one point, Bill Murray says, I've worked in the private sector. They demand results. So the, the Wall Street Journal picked up on this. Incidentally, when they they saw the movie being like right there, you know, like a business school perfect. And the other thing is that they've invented what they call the indispensable defense science for the uh, I don't know for the 20th century or, mm-hmm. or something like that. In
0: 1983, Reagan announced his anti-missile defense system. He called it Star Wars. Wasn't that also a movie?
2: That was a movie. And, of course, you know, I think it was at that time still the, the top-grossing movie ever. And he didn't call it Star Wars. That was the press, and that the Democrats called it Star Wars. And they thought that that was, you know, a sign that they were dissing it. It was a kind of uh, derisive term. But Reagan understood that that was like a great term, that they handed him, you know, a wonderful trademark. I mean, George Lucas wasn't happy about it and and Reagan had this riff on he said, Well, you know, they call it Star Wars but you know, we'll do it and you know, the force will be with us or something like that. So he he pretended to object to the title, but then he, you know, like used another phrase from the from the movie.
0: You call Star Wars quote a seamless blend of Walt Disney and Lenny Riefenstahl.
2: (laughs) Wow. Well Star Wars is 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 an amazing entertainment package. Uh, it has this, you know, grade school narrative, and I mean that literally. I mean, it, it is a kids' movie. The fact that it that it appealed, you know, universally can tell us something about the what the what the audience wanted in those days. So it has this this uh, uh, kind of grade school account of a uh, rebellion against a, um, a tyranny, and it's how can you kind can't quite figure it out, you know, like. The princess is also part of the republic, and you know I mean, it's basically like young people against old, young people and robots against the old mean people. But the uh, the slickness of it, the uh, the, the way that uh, Lucas fetishizes hardware, and uh, you know these spectacular scenes. There are scenes that, that quote directly from uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, and it's not innocent. I mean, he went to film school, uh, so he certainly was familiar. With these movies. And it's not that I'm saying that Star Wars is a fascist movie, although it has been said it's a movie that a fascist audience might might enjoy, but that he didn't care. It was something that worked.
0: In a third film we need to talk about, one of Reagan's most famous lines was, go ahead, make my day. This was in 1985 when he was telling Congress that he would veto any tax increase. It's Make My Day is the title of your book. And, of course, it comes from a Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry movie, the 1983 film Sudden Impact. Let's talk about Clint Eastwood's persona on screen.
2: Okay. I mean, Eastwood was, during uh, um, much of the 70s and into the 80s, the number one uh, male star, which is to say the number one star. To me, that's very interesting because... Whoever's the number one star with John Wayne for a long time is kind of uh, uh, American male ego ideal. And uh, Eastwood was that, although the thing with Eastwood was that he was a, a more ambiguous character than, uh, than, than John Wayne. He was hipper in a way. I mean, uh, I remember when he, he first started making movies, people thought that, oh, maybe he's like, you know, uh, uh, closer to James Dean. Than to uh, then than to John Wayne, uh, there's certain moral ambiguity, and when he played Dirty Harry, he was a figure that I call like the legal vigilante. I mean, he could break the law because he was right. Uh, some people saw that as a, as a sort of fascist uh, figure. Uh, in any case, he had some very good lines which he could deliver, and Make My Day was one of them. I forget who did the screenplay for uh, Sudden Impact. But it was a, it was a terrific line, and I think he delivered it to somebody. It was one of these things: where, you know, Are they going to draw their gun? You know, yeah, go ahead and draw, and I'll shoot you, and it'll make my day. That yeah. kind of thing. But Reagan just understood it, it. It stayed with him. I don't think anybody wrote that for him. I think that it just it just popped out the way a lot of movie lines would would pop out uh, of his mouth in, in certain situations. And uh, the fact that he's casting himself as Dirty Harry. Is, uh, is is very powerful. I mean, dirty Harry was like the toughest cop in America, you know, which means the toughest cop in the world.
0: You end your book, Make My Day, with a terrific epilogue comparing and contrasting Reagan and Trump. Both came out of an entertainment background. Both were polished salesmen who became president, but the differences are pretty interesting. Reagan you, you have said was old Hollywood in incarnate you know the happy ending. Trump clearly is not about happy endings, and his background in entertainment uh, is very different uh,
2: yes, obviously he's a, he's a creature of, uh, of of television, of um, reality TV, but also of uh, of fox I mean he was a he was a a, a political. Pundit on Fox for, uh, for a few years, and also was involved in wrestling too, and has been involved in a lot of these forgery showbiz things. So Trump is, is about, understands that uh, the kind of entertainment that he's good at is by nature divisive. You know, you, 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 want, to, you want to create villains and polarize the audience, you know, to, to, to rev them up. Uh, you know, Reagan had his demagogic instinct, certainly, particularly when he ran for governor of California. But he was more inclined to to bring people together as, uh, as was said, the way that movies do, you know, make a scenario that appeals to the greatest number of people. Uh, Trump has no interest in that. I mean, he's got his audience.
0: Well, in your book, you say Trump is a synthesis of two great movie demagogues of 1976, Howard Beale of Network, and especially Sylvester Stallone's Rocky. Uh, let's focus on Rocky here for a minute, because it seems to me there's a lot of Rocky in the Trump persona.
2: Yes, first of all, all politicians love Rocky. I mean, the, the Rocky theme is a sort of the unofficial anthem of anybody running for president. Any man, we, you know, women don't tend to use it in the same way. The thing with Rocky is that Rocky put a kind of smile face uh, on a form of nativism and specifically on racism. I mean, this was, a, this was the, uh, really the motor of that movie. The movie was all about the original Rocky, although you know it comes up again in the other ones, about putting uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, probably the, the perceived as like the biggest threat in American uh, popular culture since Elvis, and maybe a bigger threat, putting him in his place. And that's what that movie's about. You know, some lovable, you know, uh, white palooka, you know, a, a club fighter comes out of the past and uh, fights this horrendous, powerful black man to a standstill. And, it's that, and that's the happy ending. So, sure, I mean, uh, uh, that's the kind of thing that would appeal to, to Trump in his sunnier moves. But I think that Howard Beale, who could just get on television and rant and rave, uh, and uh, um, get people to like go to their windows and 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 respond to him is a, is, is, is a model for him uh, too.
0: So in conclusion, you say Reagan's movie was America, the idealized, happy America of his imagination. What is Trump's movie about?
2: I, I think Trump's movie is about Trump and I think that... He has succeeded in making himself such a compelling figure that he he dominates this this landscape. I don't know that, that people felt that way about Reagan. I think that, that Reagan was he could be like an everyman writ large in a way, if that's what he wanted to play. You know, Trump, you know, is like is like the villain from a uh, you know a, a superhero movie. He's a menace. And um, I think people are, are transfixed by that. I mean, some people, I mean, it's, it would be, you know, he certainly does not appeal to everybody. In fact, arguably, he's the least appealing president ever. But the, uh, but the people who like him really do like him. And uh, it's him that they like.
0: Jay Hoberman, his new book is Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. It's totally great. Jim, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.